I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and you'll find it on page 982 of that pew Bible in front of you. As you turn, this morning I am going to tell you a secret. It's a secret about strength. A secret is typically something that is kept hidden, something that's private, it's not adopted or known by many. Some secrets are hurtful and others can be very helpful. And this secret to being strong will change your outlook on life. Because everybody wants to be strong. Nobody wants to be weak. But there are different types of strength, aren't there? And this secret helps with the right type of strength as you continue to grow in the Lord. It helps with the type of strength that confronts a struggle that nearly all of us have. Throughout the book of Philippians, we've seen big life themes of progress and purpose and joy. They've been prevalent throughout the book. And now Paul concludes the letter and we conclude our series this morning and it leaves us with an example that is related to one of these more difficult aspects in life to navigate. Because every Christian I know, well not just every Christian I know, probably every person I know, goes through a specific temptation. And that temptation is related to our lifestyle. For the Christian, it's some, something expressed like this. I'm trying to follow God. I'm trying to do the right things. I'm trying to rely on Jesus in the different circumstances of my life. Shouldn't this mean that some of the material things in life would come more easily for me? Shouldn't it mean that if I follow God, that the material things, my finances, my possessions, would come more easily? But as many of us have experienced, as life goes on, we realize that this isn't necessarily the case. And I know the temptation. The temptation is if I don't see the desired results and the timing that I expect, the temptation is to abandon the growth track that I'm on. And this is particularly true when it comes to the things that we can see and feel and touch. Things that relate to our lifestyle. And so it's interesting, but not completely surprising, that as Paul ends the letter, he ends it with a secret to maintaining strength as you continue to grow in your life with Christ. So let's read together. Follow with me. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 10 to the end of the book, it says this. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low and know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my need once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. There is a secret strength in life. For Paul, there was a financial need for support. He had been traveling, now he was imprisoned, and if the gospel work was going to go forward, financial partnership was needed. But in these closing remarks to the Philippians, Paul not only talks about the nature of Christian fellowship and partnership, but he also continues on this string of really big themes in life. In the previous section, he encouraged us how to have the peace of God in our lives, and If you were with us last week, you heard that you can have peace with God. And when you have peace with God through faith in Jesus, you can have the peace of God over all of your life and your relationships and your circumstances, even the peace of God in your mind. The peace of God rests where the God of peace reigns. And that is an incredible reminder that we need to hear again and again and again. And the second part of chapter 4, we see this idea continued as peace is expanded upon with the ideas of strength and contentment. Paul says in verse 11 and 12, as we read a moment ago, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned In whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low and how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance and need. Now that's quite a claim. (laughs) Do you mean to tell me, Paul, that you have found the way to face life well, regardless of the physical state you're in or the material possessions you have. Do you mean to tell me that you've learned that? Life is hard. You mean to tell me you've learned that when you are ill? Yes. What if you are without shelter? Yes. What if You are without food. 
Yes. What if you have too much? What then can you still be content when you have the opportunity to buy whatever you want? Yes. I have learned the secret strength of contentment, he says. It's interesting. He has nothing, and yet he says he has no need. There's something to chew on there for a minute. To be content, the definition of content is to be happy or satisfied with the current situation and not hoping for or requiring a change. Do you feel content? (laughs) To be happy or satisfied with the current situation, not hoping for or requiring a change. Many of us have no idea what that feels like. And here, Paul is indicating that he, though he is lacking much, is satisfied and not requiring a change. And this would indicate that his contentment is not based on his external realities, which are almost all horrible. And if it's not based on the external, then it must come from something inside of him. And that's the secret. He tells us the source in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret strength is really no strength of his own, but it is learning to rely on the strength that Jesus gives you regardless of what you have or what you don't have. At first glance, that might seem to be like a very distant reality, but this type of reliance will be displayed in very specific ways in your life. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But take a step back first and think about it with me. That this strength is not something that is self-generated. That contentment is not something that just comes from the sheer force of your will. Because in the book of Philippians, we see that your life as a Christian is defined by things that aren't self-generated. Righteousness is not self-generated. It comes from Christ, chapter 3. Your most meaningful relationships are not self-generated. They come from those who are growing in Christ along with you, chapter 1. An agenda for life is not self-generated. It's God's agenda to live as Christ, to die as gain, chapter 1. And peace for this life is not self-generated. It's the peace of God, chapter 4. So when, it comes, when Paul comes to the point of saying that strength is not self-generated, but it comes from Christ, well, of course it does. The message of the whole book has been the very definition of who you are, what your purpose is, what your agenda is, how you have joy and peace and now strength and contentment. None of it is self-generated. It comes from the giver of good gifts who loves his children dearly and gives us everything we need in this life. And so when we rely on Christ for strength, no matter what the circumstances of life are, when we trust in God's provision, when we step back and we take a perspective that says, what I have, I have from God, and the things I don't have, I don't have from God. We learn to be content. I have learned 
in whatever situation, I'm to be content. True strength is displayed in contentment with God's supply. That's the secret. Now, we often read Philippians 4.13 and says, that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we might think of strength that's displayed in being victorious. We think of being the champion or hitting the home run or closing the business deal. But secret strength is that true strength is displayed in contentment with God's supply. And Paul's reference to contentment here points to some common beliefs among the philosophers of his day, the Stoics. He is the shocking cultural buzzword here. The Stoics believed that contentment was based on the idea that man should be independent and self-sufficient in all things. And some of you think that way. I don't want to rely on anybody for anything. I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to forge the trail. I'm going to be self-determining in such things. And Paul is saying the exact opposite to be true. Your contentment is only found when you're completely dependent on somebody else, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this contentment is something that you have to learn, he says. You learn as you engage your material possessions, you place them in their proper position in relationship to the biggest values, priorities, joys, and purposes of life that point to Christ. Now, he illustrates that the secret to this contentment is not normally learned through just one type of circumstance. He says that it's through exposure to both extremes that he's learned it. For those who have experienced plenty They rightly ask how content they would be if they were forced to live with much less. Some of you might ask that question. Could I still be content if my house was half the size? Some of you say, I'd like to clean less than I do. (laughs) Would I still be content if I can't go out to eat as much as I can? Would I still be content if I don't have some of the toys that I have? And in fact, for some of us, our monetary resources are such that illustrate how discontent we actually are because we have the ability to keep buying more and so we do keep buying more and then we wonder when the chrome wears off after two weeks or two months or maybe two years, why our fulfillment isn't found in that thing that we so desperately wanted just a short time ago. Because the allure for the newest or the flashiest or the most comfortable, it's strong. And we can afford to have nice things. When we pursue them out of a lack of contentment, we become blind in some ways to our own shortcoming, only then to be left wondering why we still don't feel satisfaction. Conversely, Paul says, I've learned this contentment through need or want or lack. For those of us who have only experienced need instead of abundance, we wonder if we will be content when we get what we want (laughs) or if the next thing will be the thing, if we could just have a little bit more than what we have today. But this too is futile. 
So Paul learned that true contentment comes after experiencing both. I know what it is to be brought low and how to abound. In every and any circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance and need. The extreme examples abound for him. Contentment is learned through both sets of circumstances because true contentment is not based on either one of them. Through exposure to both, you see that neither one of these things will actually make you content. And so the question is, for you and for me, are you striving for contentment through your possessions? Are you striving for contentment through your money? Are you striving for contentment through your circumstances? Or through your job? And if the answer is yes, you will never find true contentment there. In the 1960s, Jim Noop was building apartment buildings in the Bay Area around San Francisco. And the apartments were cramped and they usually didn't have garages. And so he soon noticed that his renters were frustrated by the lack of storage space for all of their stuff. And so he looked into the problem and realized that it wasn't just renters who had too much stuff. In fact, most Americans were acquiring more possessions than their homes could ever hold. And so in 1970, he purchased a small piece of land in Alameda and he built California's first self-storage facility. People in California told him that he was absolutely nuts. Said people will never pay money just to use a 10 by 10 shed to store their stuff. Nobody has that much stuff, they said. In just a few weeks, he had rented out all the units he owned. And so he opened another one in Berkeley, and then San Pablo, and then Vallejo, and then San Leandro, and then Foster City, and then Colma, and then Hayward, and soon he owned thousands of storage units up and down the California coast. He made millions upon millions of dollars simply by giving people a place to store their stuff. And if you've ever owned a self-storage facility, you might know that once the stuff goes in, the stuff doesn't come out. But nevertheless, we sure like our stuff. In so many ways, it displays our weakness, doesn't it? It displays the exact struggle that Paul is talking about. The fact that more doesn't provide happiness, that higher wages won't give you satisfaction, that despite the fact that we live in the richest country in the history of the world, our weakness is displayed in the fact that there never seems to be enough. But secret strength is displayed in contentment. And so here you see how the themes start to merge together. These words, Faith and contentment and peace are all related ideas. Faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins ushers you into a relationship with the eternal God who is bigger than your circumstances and he's bigger than your desires and he is more able to meet your deepest needs than you even realize. And so once you begin to see him and know him and trust him, your faith grows from 
grows from a saving faith to an ongoing or sustaining faith that's active daily in your life. In the previous section, Paul talks about the peace of God, as we mentioned. In your life, as you rejoice in the Lord and depend upon him in prayer and thanksgiving and let your requests be made known to him, reliance on God in prayer allows the peace of God to be upon you. And so you see how faith leads to peace and peace leads to strength in God as you rely on Christ and this strength actually produces contentment. But you need to learn it. And so are you content? Or are you still wanting more material things? The battle's strong. And there's a number of very practical ways that you can fight this battle. The first is just very simply to take a very large step back and evaluate yourself in the mirror. What am I striving after in this life and why? The second is that anytime you think about making a new purchase, especially a big purchase, ask yourself the very simple question. If I get this new kitchen, is it gonna actually make me any more content? If I have this new car, it's going to be fun, it's going to be nice, it's going to be comfortable, but is it going to actually, is it going to truly change the quality of my life? If I have this next thing, how is that going to change my day in and day out experience? The battle for contentment is strong, but you will only truly be content when you experience that true strength lies in what Jesus himself provides. And you can learn it. You can learn it. You can have a perspective-altering dynamic in your life where you say, everything I have comes from God and I can learn to be content in that. And everything I don't have but have a temptation to want also comes from God and I can be content in that as well. And when you learn it, true strength comes and is displayed in this contentment with God's supply. Secondly, we see in the second half of the passage an assurance that Paul gives them and he gives us, assuring generous fruit that comes from generous giving. Let me remind you of what it says. Verse 14 He says, you were kind to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church had entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That's a very interesting phrase. We'll come back in a second. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Jesus Christ. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Of all the churches Paul dealt with, the Philippians were marked as faithful financial partners in the gospel. And the word partner here has a root word behind it. The root word is koinon in New Testament Greek. It's the word for fellowship. Partnership and fellowship. Fellowship is a relational connection that is marked by a common share in something or an active participation or a partnership. The partnership had been expressed in many different ways, most notably in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, he says, I thank my God in all of my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, you were all partakers with me of grace. Partakers, koinon, partners. Your partners in the gospel, your partners in grace, and now they're partners in giving and receiving. The generosity they received from God resulted in them giving generously to the cause of God, the gospel. And there's something here for us because this is the normal sequence or normal pattern of growth for Christians. They receive forgiveness from God. They're grateful to God. They experience the peace of God in their lives. They grow to be content in what God has given them. And as a result, they grow in generosity for the sake of the gospel. And they can do that because of their contentment. You can't grow in generosity if you're always discontent. Why? Because you always just spend your money on the thing that you think is going to make you content. But when you're content with what God gives, you can actually grow in generosity. A pastor friend of mine says it something like this, and the order I think is really encouraging. It's a great motto for your life with regard to contentment and generosity and money. He says it like this. He says, we worship a generous God, And we desire to be a generous people. So we give back to God generously by giving at least 10% of our income to him. We set some money aside for savings, number two. And we live off the rest. Most of us probably grew up intuitively saying, we live off of the money that we have. (laughs) And if we have any left, we might save a little. And if we have any left, we might give a little to God. But this is the inverse of that. We give back to God because he's generous. We save what we can, and then we live off the rest. It's a great model for how to look at your finances. And I tell you what, once you adopt that culture, and once you adopt a culture of personal generosity, it becomes absolutely infectious. You desire to do more and to grow more and to become even more generous than others around you notice and they're compelled to do the same as well. The churches in northeastern India in the state of Mizoram have adopted this beautiful phrase about the way that they give to God. They call it Bufaitam and it means one handful of rice at a time. Here's how it works. The families... In the church, set aside a portion of rice at every meal 
for God. When they collect enough rice, they donate it to their local church. The church turns around and sells it to generate income for the work of the gospel. They started this practice in 1914 and used the sale of rice to raise $1.50 in U.S. money at the time. But lately, Christians there have been collecting over $1.5 million as they support 1,800 missionaries in addition to local ministry. People have also started giving in more creative ways, vegetables and firewood and other resources that flow into the church's outreach for the kingdom. And one of the leaders describes it this way. He says, there are many ways of serving the Lord. Some people do great things. Some people are great preachers. Some people contribute lots and lots of money. But when we talk about the handful of rice, it's very humble. The service is done in the corner of the kitchen where nobody sees it, but God knows and he blesses it. Another church member said, it is not our riches or our poverty that make us serve the Lord, but it's our willingness. So we Mizu people say, as long as we have something to eat every day, we have something to give God every day. And in the midst of this generosity, Paul's encouraged. He's encouraged, verse 10, look at it with me. He rejoiced greatly that they had revived their concern for him. In the midst of generosity, Paul continues in contentment. He says, I've received full payment. I'm well supplied, verse 18. And he says that while we know having very, very little financially for himself. In the midst of generosity, Paul is thankful for the growth of the giver as the partnership in the gospel grows. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but the fruit that increases to your credit. Let's pause right there for a second because that's really interesting. Paul's not concerned for his well-being, but rather the fact that their generosity produces fruit that increases to their credit. There's a divine multiplication that happens when God's people give to God's work in generosity. In other words, your investment into the work of the gospel is a very good investment because God is the one who is overseeing its return. Finally, Paul says in the midst of generosity, Christians can trust and will continue, that God will continue to supply their needs from his infinite storehouse of riches. Verse 19, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So growing in generosity comes out of contentment. It is a benefit to you to the ministry of the gospel and to the kingdom as a whole. And those benefits are immense. True strength, the secret, he says, something you can learn. The temptation that is before us all of discontentment, there's a secret strength and it's found, it's displayed in contentment with God's supply. You've heard me tell this story before, but it's so appropriate, it's worth telling again. Bob Parks, or Perks, excuse me, was at the airport one day 
when he overheard a father and a daughter in their last moments together. They had announced the departure of the airplane and standing near the security gate, he hugged his daughter and he said, I love you and I wish you enough. She in turn said, Daddy, our life together has been more than enough. Your love is all I ever needed and I wish you enough too, Daddy. They kissed and she left. And he walked over toward the window where I was seated and standing there I could see that the man wanted and needed to cry. I tried not to intrude on his privacy but he welcomed me in asking, did you ever say goodbye to someone knowing that it would be forever? Yes, I have, I replied. Saying that brought back memories I had of expressing my love and appreciation for all my dad had done for me. Recognizing that his days were limited, I took the time to tell him face to face how much he meant to me so I knew something of what the man was experiencing. Forgive me for asking, but why is this a forever goodbye? I asked. He replied, I am old and she lives much too far away. I have challenges ahead and the reality is that the next trip back would be for my funeral, he said. And when you were saying goodbye, I heard you say, I wish you enough. May I ask what that means? He began to smile. He said, that's a wish that's been handed down from other generations. My parents used to say it to everyone. And he paused for a moment and looking up as if he were trying to remember in detail, he smiled even more. When we say, I wish you enough, we were wanting the other person to have a life filled with just enough good things to sustain them. He continued, and then turning toward me, he shared the following as if he were reciting it from memory. He said, I wish you enough sun to keep your attitude bright. I wish you enough rain to appreciate the sun more. I wish you enough happiness to keep your spirit alive. I wish you enough pain so that the smallest joys in life appear much bigger. I wish you enough gain to satisfy your wanting. I wish you enough loss to appreciate all you possess. And I wish you enough hellos to get you through the final goodbye. I wish you enough. It is God who gives you what you need. God does that. And true strength in life is displayed in being content with God's supply. And so friends, I don't wish you wealth and I don't wish you poverty. I wish you enough. Let's pray.
Lord, you are our generous king. And we do not always recognize you as being generous. And so we pray that you would forgive us. And today, that you would continue to alter our perspective, that you would increase our trust, that you would encourage us along the lines of things of greatest worth and value, and that you would give us just enough. We thank you for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.